Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. Today, I'm talking to the author of the soon-to-be-released YA thriller, Bent Heavens, and the posthumous collaboration with George Romero in The Living Dead, author Daniel Krause. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So something that I ask everyone that I have on is, what's your relationship to the horror genre? Was it something you grew up loving or something you fell into later in life? Oh, definitely grew up. Uh, sort of my origin story is um, seeing Night of Living Dead uh, when I was probably five or six years old. So very young. Oh, wow. Uh, but my mom was a, uh, a horror fan. And, you know, and Night of Living Dead... It, it, you can watch it and be scared by it, but if you have the right sort of audience, you can also watch it for it. I can't value. You mm-hmm. can also be sort of, it doesn't have to be a scary experience. And my mom and I watched it when I was very young and then throughout uh, my life because it was one of those films that sort of famously wasn't copywritten correctly. And so the film could be played by anyone, anywhere, at any time. So that's why me and many, many other people grew up seeing that Living Dead constantly. <laughs> Because it didn't cost any network or any station money to play it, so yes, I grew up. I grew up with horror, uh, particularly George Romero, and then um, probably when I got to be maybe in fourth or fifth grade, uh, really, really leaned into it hard with uh, you know Stephen King, and I was I became borderline obsessed with the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Oh, nice. That was my entry probably into horror. Yeah. <laughs> was the Nightmare yeah, on Elm Street one. one. I really did. I didn't know about the copyright thing with Night yeah. of the Living Dead until I read it in the insert that came with the Living Dead. And I guess that makes right. sense because I've seen it playing in the background of a lot of horror movies. So I guess if they don't have to deal with copyright stuff, that would make exactly. sense. Exactly. So, so it was a double-edged sword, right? So it's on the one hand, George Romero lost out <clears throat> on so much money. Uh, because he couldn't get, he didn't get paid for those millions and millions of screenings. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, because it didn't cost anyone to screen it, it became ubiquitous and everyone knew it. And it, the the fame of it, you know, that that allowed it to become famous in an old fashioned version of virally. You know, everyone saw it. I guess that's true. I mean, it's huge, Eric. We were talking before <laughs> recording, yeah. but I'm from Pittsburgh and I live pretty close to Evan City and actually go there for a lot of things. And yeah, I mean, everyone has some kind of relationship to Night of the Living Dead. Right. When I was there um, not too long ago, I got a uh, a lift, I think, and the driver was saying, oh yeah, my, the the woman who played Barbara was a te- is a teacher and taught my daughter. So literally everyone seems to know somebody, <laughs> in, in Pittsburgh anyway, who, yeah. who was related to the film. That's funny. As someone who's collaborated on projects before, like The Shape of Water and Troll Hunters with Guillermo del Toro, what was it like in this instance to kind of collaborate with a manuscript? Like, what was that process like? It was surprisingly similar. I mean, you would think it would be very different because yeah. in this case, you know, George Romero uh, uh, had, had died before I was brought on to the project, uh, which is, you know, incredibly sad, but that's that, that was the situation. And, but what was so funny about the process was it started differently. It started differently because I was dealing with a manuscript 
that I had to sort of uh, study intensely. And that's a massive process that we can talk about if you want. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening is after I, you know, did a bunch of work up front and started working on the project, things kept popping up. Like at one point we found a bunch more pages that he had written. Oh. And then at another point we found uh, a letter that he had written that outlined where a lot of the plot was going. Um, but these, these weren't available to me at the beginning. You know, I was uh, probably a few hundred pages into the book when we got the additional pages. And then I was a couple hundred pages more. And it's a very long book when I, when I got the letter. So it was almost like George was still out there as a collaborator sending me stuff because occasionally I would just get new stuff. Uh, so in that way, it wasn't totally unlike a normal collaboration. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask because I, I have a copy of it right here and it is quite a large book. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to ask, do you have any idea how, well, how much was in the manuscript or how much was added or if that's... Well, I think it's, I, I don't know scientifically, yeah. but my, my gut impression is that, uh, that George wrote probably about a third of the book, mm-hmm. but then had a bunch of notes on where the rest of it was going. So, uh, and that third that he wrote, this is an important distinction, isn't necessarily the first third of the book. Oh, He wrote stuff that is present all throughout the book. So, uh, he wrote stuff that's on page one and he wrote stuff that's on the final page. So his, this, the material from him covers the entirety of the book. Uh, and in addition, he had a bunch of notes on, that guided me to certain places. So. Uh, I would think that together you can sort of, you know, credit him for at least half the book. I, wanted, I was curious about the uh, decision and how that came up because you were chosen by the estate. So, like, did they let you know they were, like, mm-hmm. considering a few people and, like, it got narrowed down or did they reach out to you right away? What was that process like? I think they, they wrote, they reached out to me right away. Um, oh, wow. I, uh, I... I had only met George once, but I had, uh, but I had met his. Uh, I knew um, his manager, and I think uh, a man named uh, Chris Rowe, and um, he, I think, sort of kept kept track of me over the years. You know, I had I had done a couple collaborations with uh, Guillermo, as you said. So I think I I was somebody who made a lot of sense. Chris, uh, George's manager, knew I was a an acolyte of Romero and uh, a student of his. Uh, and that I was, you know, I was someone who had done a couple high, higher profile collaborations and was, uh, knew how to sort of operate in that space. And so, you know, he, he consulted with, uh, Suzanne Romero's wife and, um, gave me a call and changed my life. That's quite something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Romero was my, my hero, but he was my favorite artist of any type of media. So it, it really is a dream come true. Wow, what an honor. So for listeners who might not be aware of the plot of the new Living Dead book, can you tell us what it's about? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of about, uh, oh boy, it's sort of about everything. <laughs> you know, it's, Romero invented the, the modern concept of the zombie mm-hmm. with Night Living Dead in 1968. You listeners know this. So this is his final word on the topic. So, you know, he made, he directed six zombie films. That inspired everything zombie and he 
Despite that, he always had trouble getting big budgets in place. His most successful films were probably his lower budget ones. This book allowed him to sort of do all the things that he could never really get the funding to do in, in the movies. This book is big. It's epic. It uh, covers, it begins, you know, day one of Zombie. So he reboots it back to the opening of the zombie epidemic, takes it through the period covered in his films, and then goes another 10 years beyond that. So it's a, it's a very broad look that's focused mostly on America uh, during sort of the, the fall of humankind and then the rise of other things. And I'm going to leave that uh, enticingly vague. <laughs> but the, the idea is there's a, there's a bigger idea at play that doesn't necessarily answer all the questions you might have about zombies, but certainly shows them in a new light, I think. Okay, I was going to ask you if we got into where the zombies came from or what's causing it this time, but we can leave that vague. <laughs> well, I, I can answer that. No, you're never really ever going to learn the hard answer of, of that. Like, he, he was very explicit that he didn't want to uh, give a clear answer. He is, It said right in the manuscript, this will not give, that you will never, no one will ever know exactly what happened. But there are things that are, were in all of his other zombie works that were just sitting there, sort of unnoticed, that this book makes more explicit. I became convinced, at least when working with this manuscript and doing the research that I did, that there were certain things he was heading towards. Mm -hmm. And there's a big author's note at the end, end of the book that lays out everything that I researched and all of my theories and uh, why any choice that I made that wasn't you know, directly from George, why I thought it was the right choice to make based on the evidence. And so I, I was able to sort of build a compelling case for where I believed he was heading with some of his zombies, zombie stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's going to surprise some people, but really the seeds were all planted by Romero. They were all there just waiting to, for someone, I think, to put two and two together. So that's good. So you did have different notes where he said, like, definitely this never comes to pass. And mm -hmm. oh. mm -hmm. okay. And that and when is that coming out? That comes out June 9th, June 9th. And you also have a another book coming out this month, right? Yes. Uh, yes. At the end of February. <laughs> and that is Ben Tevins. I'm actually halfway through that right now and very much enjoying it. Ah. Uh. Well, everything you think you understand will be flipped Is, around. Oh no, everything's going to get changed. Um, I did see the the back author's note, and you said that you um, looked into the declassified excerpts from the Senate Intelligence Committee on the enhanced interrogation techniques. So, what was that mm -hmm. like? Looking into all that. Well, it's not pleasant. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's. Like it's widely available, you know, uh -huh. it's, not, it's a, it's a publicly available document. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good. It does not reflect well upon, uh, American government. It does not reflect well upon humans and, you know, that's one, but it was one of the, the guiding forces of this, uh, novel, you know, the idea of torture really mm -hmm. and what, what use is it and can it ever be excused and at what point you know how many if you if you torture someone how many lives is that worth you know it, it's these are impossible 
or at least very difficult questions to wrap your your head around. Um, but there are questions that are not going away. I mean, I have full confidence that people are being tortured right now. We're not going to know about it until far after the fact. And I know this doesn't make this sound like an incredibly fun read, but it's, you know, the book hopefully, though, is very, uh, is an exciting, uh, scary, thought-provoking thriller. But it just sort of has in its bones or in its marrow sort of these, some of these really difficult, unpleasant questions that, you know, that are going to make you have to rest. You're going to have to wrestle with them as a reader, and you're going to have to wrestle with how you feel about characters in the book as they do this or that thing that feels like it may or may not be acceptable. I was going to ask, yeah, which came first then, the the aliens, the conspiracy, or the torture aspect? That's a good question. I think... I think it all sort of happened simultaneously. I was I don't I don't really recall the the exact often I do, often I recall the exact origins of books, but this one I really don't. But I know that the idea was from its infancy was about someone for reasons that they thought were just uh, torturing an alien. And you, I mean you don't have to think too hard to sort of see uh, just in the, the choice of words I'm using the the modern day current ramifications of of what we're talking about. You know, I think, you know, sometimes I've described the book, it it sounds kind of flippant, but as E.T., except the the kids who find E.T. torture E.T. So so it sounds pretty uh, horrible, but in a sense is kind of true. I mean, it's nice that the kids in E.T. found E.T. and they, you know, put a sweatshirt on him and drove him around, but it could have gone the other way, you know, it, it, they could have found E.T., who kind of is cute, but he's also kind of weird looking, and uh, decided, oh, we're gonna have we're gonna have fun with this with this alien uh, in a different sort of way. So I think you know it's possible that as you know that I even started thinking about these things as a kid and seeing E.T. Like there's there's that scene in E.T. that has scarred a lot of people my age, where E.T.'s uh, he he gets sick. And he's all white, and he's lying in a ditch, and it's uh, a really unsettling image that uh, really sort of was traumatic for a lot of kids when they saw it. And that's, you know, that's the kind of image that I'm playing with here. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a book that's tough in some ways, mm-hmm. tough in some ways, but but hopefully is, you know, at the first and foremost though, uh, you know, still good reading entertainment. Yeah, I would say it's very very readable. I would say it's quite dark for a young adult book. And was there a particular reason you chose to have teenage protagonists? It always just seemed the right choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, E.T. dealt with younger people. I think it'd be easier to come down harder on older people. I liked I liked the idea that we have uh, teenagers who are still sort of figuring out their way in the world and figuring out their moral codes, have kind of being thrust into this situation that they're not entirely prepared for. And for some reason, I'd always centered the idea of the story around, you know, one of the teen's uh, fathers being uh, abducted. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the gist of the book, is uh, the the main uh, character. Her father, you know, believed he was abducted by aliens uh, and raved about it, and everyone in town thought he was crazy, and then vanished. 
And of course, no one actually believed his vanishing had anything to do with aliens, including his daughter. But he set these traps up all over his property so he could catch the aliens when they came back to get him. And sort of as a habit, the uh, daughter and her friend Doug, every Sunday they go and reset the traps. Uh, and what this book, what happens in the early part of this book is they finally catch something. Just just when she's about to take down the traps for good, they catch an alien. So that's that's the sort of setup. I always thought of it that way. I wanted a young person dealing with a you know, sort of a parental loss. Yeah. To give them something to really be angry about mm-hmm. and to uh, want answers from the alien. I was going to say, it definitely elevates the emotional stakes. You have had quite a year because I saw that you just teased yeah, another project that's coming out. Uh, yeah, I've had, a, this is a very unusual year for me where I'm going to have five books out in 12 months, which is highly, highly unusual and will never happen again, uh, uh, God willing. Um, and really, it's just a sort of confluence of factors that mostly have to do with all five books being wildly different from one another Mm -hmm. and different audiences. You know, there's one for kids, one for teens. Uh, There's an adult book. There's a graphic novel. So there's a crime novel. So they're all very different audiences. They don't really compete with each other. But yes, so so I have Bent Heavens coming out in February and The Living Dead coming out in June. And this fall, I have the first book in a trilogy that's called The Teddy's Saga. That's the name of the trilogy. And it's a book for um, middle grade uh, aged kids. Uh, though I think, again, like most of my stuff, it, it reads up pretty well. I think even adults will get something out of it. And the first book is called They Threw Us Away. Um, and it, the, the premise of the, the trilogy is that there's this group of teddy bears who wakes up in a trash dump. And they don't know why they were thrown away. They're brand new. And so they go on this long, harrowing, three-book journey to try to figure out what they did to make everyone throw them away and try to redeem themselves in some way. And so these are teddy bears? <laughs> you heard me right, yes. <laughs> these are teddy bears. Okay. I've been watching the Toy Story movies with my son because he's become obsessed with them on Disney+. Plus. So, mm-hmm. Well, I think the publisher describes the Teddy saga as Toy Story meets Lord of the Flies. Ooh, I like that. So it's got a little bit of Toy Story in it, but is uh, far darker and spookier. They're following the toys that were not so lucky. Exactly. Very unlucky. So I noticed that when you sign up for your newsletter, you get... Uh, a doc that has some suggestions for movies that people might not have seen. So have you come across anything recently that you think our listeners might enjoy, something off the beaten path? Yeah, if you go to danielkraus.com, there's, you can sign up for my newsletter and it'll kind of send you this document that has my favorite obscure horror <laughs> films. And most of them are pretty obscure. You probably haven't seen any of them. And some of them, actually, you probably won't be able to find. I'm like, but I didn't. Most, I hadn't heard of any of them. So yeah, there's there's <laughs> one or two on there that you're gonna have to struggle to to see. But uh, most of them are available in some way, at least on YouTube or something. Um, let's see. I mean, there's so many I could talk about. Uh, there's there's one that's not on that list that I like. It's a 2007 film, a uh, Japanese film called. XD, I don't know how you exactly say it. It's E X T E, 
colon uh, hair extensions. Okay. So, yeah, okay. it's a very weird title. And it is about evil hair extensions. I don't remember exactly how these evil hair extensions come to be, but but somehow there's a salon in Japan and they're they're giving people evil hair extensions, which sounds ludicrous. <laughs> but it's so good. Uh, and it's... I mean, it's kind of funny, I guess, because of what we're, we're talking about, but it's actually pretty... Uh, pretty spooky too and the effects are just amazing you know anything and much more than that you could imagine happening with hair happens in this you know just hair flying all over the place and <laughs> filling up rooms and shooting out of people's faces and it's it's really it's really cool it's the kind of uh, discovery definitely that i like to share with people and where'd you find this one i believe i saw it on uh, via netflix dvd hmm um, so, which is not a service many people use anymore, but still is a way to, to see some obscure things that you can't stream. All right. We'll have to put that in the show notes in case people want to check that yeah. out. Evil hair extension. So do you have a favorite horror subgenre that you like to look out for? Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of a fan of uh, body horror, which is, um, as your listeners know, sort of, sort of uh, takes on the... Uh, malforming human body, anyway. mm-hmm. sort of David Cronenberg yeah. is the most I was gonna say that. <laughs> practitioner of it. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think I like that genre because it's one of the few that can actually sort of affect me, you know, emotionally. Like I love horror movies, but I very, very, very rarely am I scared by them. Uh, and even with body horror, I'm not really ever scared. But it, but they do provoke a reaction, and that even if that reaction is you know disgust, it's I am you know the kind of person who does want to react to art. I, I like when if something makes me uh, laugh or you know or in rare cases feel scared or whatever I I mean I'm, or just provokes me in some way. That that's really what I'm looking for. I want to feel something, whether it's a pleasant feeling or not. So body horror tends to, uh, as a horror subgenre anyway, tends to have that effect on me. Yeah, I mean, I think for even the most like hardcore horror fans, some of that stuff is hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it can be. And there's, there's definitely uh, examples out there that are just kind of junk. And I don't mean that in a really a prerogative way, but, you know, are just sort of shock. Yeah. Shock pieces. And, you know, there's, a, there's a, maybe a place for that, but... But, you know, some of the great stuff, you know, like the Cronenberg films, they're really, really interesting works of art that, you know, sort of force you to look inward in a way that most genres don't. I do have some listener questions for you. Jason White wants to know which of the Romero's Living Dead movies is your favorite. That's a great question. Uh, I think sentimentally, it's uh, Night of the Living Dead. I mean, it's the movie that I've seen more than any other movie. It's It's... You know, it's it's not it's not even really like a movie to me anymore. You know, it's more like an like an album. You know, it's like a piece of music that I know backwards and forwards. Uh, so that's that's probably the the, the real answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that aside, uh, I'm a big fan of the third film, Day of the Dead. Um, I think it's uh, just a really sharp, efficient movie that. Uh, is so so much smarter than almost 
any other horror film out there. And I really am a fan of one that a lot of horror fans haven't even seen. His final film, which is called Survival of the Dead. Uh, I really think that's a really, really smart, underappreciated uh, film that people need. That will it'll, it'll have its due. It'll have its day, but it hasn't happened yet. When did that one come out? 2009, I think. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of it. Well, I yeah. haven't delved too much into the Living Dead franchise, to be honest. Well, the first three are, you know, considered just stone cold classics. Mm-hmm. And then generally, you know, the, the latter three are considered less so. Um, I think all six are, are quite good. Uh, the first three are, of course, untouchable. But I think the latter three are all uh, uh, great films. Danielle wants to know what your favorite Halloween candy is and what your inspiration was for Blood Sugar. Oh, very good. My favorite Halloween candy... So Blood Sugar, just to give you some sort of uh, reference for this question, yeah. Blood Sugar was published in October of last year and is about, it's sort of based on the urban legend of somebody uh, handing out poisoned Halloween candy. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of why they're asking this question. <laughs> uh, favorite Halloween candy, um, you know, I think back in the day, it probably would have just been uh, something like, Snickers because it felt like it was the most bang for your buck. Uh, I always had sort of a soft spot for candy corn, which I know people, some people really uh, hate. <laughs> and then, I, you know, I always sort of liked Bitto Honeys, which people really hate. Uh, they're sort of this oldie candy that I'm, I doubt kids get handed. I'm like, yeah, I, I haven't little. seen that around. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think when I was little, it was pretty rare. You know, it was on the way out, but it was this like real peanut buttery, I don't know what the hell it was, toffee or something. And it was so hard to bite. It would practically rip your teeth right out of your gums. So when you were doing research for blood sugar, did you find that there was any truth to that urban legend? Uh, Sort of. I mean, the answer is yes. There there are scattered incidents. There was even one this year. Um, But... You know, compared to the strength of the urban yeah. legend, it's, it's, you know, people talk about it as if it happens all the time, all the time when it's happened very, very infrequently. But, the, but that the reason the legend is so powerful is that it'd be so easy to do. Like it's mm-hmm. a very plausible legend. Where I'm from in Southern California, like the Temecula area, randomly, like recently it was on the news that a woman like went to go grab her car door handle and there someone had taped a razor blade to the inside of her handle and she cut her hand. So it's kind of like, I know your book explores like what kind of person does that? Like why? Yeah. And that's, that's amazing that that happened because that's sort of a a classic urban legend too. It's, It's almost like somebody decided you know read about that urban legend and decided to try it yeah it's the one just that you're talking about odd i guess i always think of that scene in like i think it's halloween too the one that takes place at the hospital like the yeah. <laughs> kid goes in with the bloody mouth they just don't really comment on it it's just there yeah yeah right um danielle also wants to know what's a non-horror book you love oh i mean you know most of the books i read aren't horror so there's so many, but no one ever asked me this. Um, let's see. What have I read recently? Uh, there's, I read an incredible nonfiction book called The Nazi Titanic, which is uh, this 
insane story about the, this boat that the Nazi regime built that was sort of supposed to rival the Titanic in in luxury, and then how that boat ended up being sort of scrapped and used in World War II, and then ended up being used in a propaganda film that was called Titanic, where it, where it actually played the Titanic. This was a Nazi propaganda film. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, the ship was used to um, when they were when the war was close to the end, and the Nazis were moving people from concentration camps. They moved uh, a great deal of them into this boat that was then sunk by British army and by accident. And they didn't. I mean, they didn't know that they were, it was filled with concentration camp victims. So it's just about the worst story you can imagine, um, but just endlessly fascinating. And I can't believe it's not more well known. I think I might have vaguely heard about the. Uh propaganda film but wow Mm -hmm. so what was that called it's called the nazi titanic to look into that i had a question about the shape of water Mm -hmm. and the collaboration process for that because it became a book after the movie so was that was it always the plan for it to be a book or how did the collaboration go yes it was always a plan to be a book uh when uh guillermo and i came up with the idea for the shape of water uh, it was going to be a movie and a book. And they uh, were supposed to come out simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, for whatever re- for various reasons, it ended up coming out, I can't remember how many months, but a few months after uh, the movie. Um, yeah, it was always the plan to do both. Was it just the craziest thing when it won? It was pretty crazy. I mean, you know, it's not something you ever think about. That the... The seed of the idea is based on an idea I had when I was a kid, um, and that's just, you know, not normally where those ideas end up. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, though. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I have a final listener question from Nicole, who wants to know, what is the scariest book you've ever read? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. P- people tend to ask me what's my favorite horror novels, but they don't tend to ask me what is the scariest book. So I don't have a, a definitive answer. But I can uh, I can certainly come up with with one or two that uh, I found scary. Again, with as with movies, I'm very very rarely scared. It almost never happens. Uh, there's books though that sort of get close. There's my my favorite horror novel of all time is a book called The Cipher by Kathy Koja K O J A. And that book, although it didn't scare me, it made me feel uncomfortable. There's there's something about it that just kind of makes you feel sweaty and concerned. Uh, I'm trying. Let me think of one other one. The Grin of the Dark by Ramsey Campbell is a definitely mm-hmm. a good book to seek out. It's sort of about a um, a forgotten silent film star. His uh, black and white, you know, comedies are rediscovered, and there's something very very creepy about them. And it's, it's got a very effective mood. I'll have to check that out because I know. Someone else has actually answered that for that question. No kidding. Yeah. So I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to have to check this book out. Interesting. (laughs) Okay. So the cipher and the grin of the dark. Okay. Now I do have some this or that questions that I like to ask people that come on. So I'll just give you some options and you tell me which one you pick. So first one, physical books, ebooks, or audiobooks. Ooh, I like all three, but I'm going to say physical books. That's a hard one for me. It's like they're all different for different occasions. They all have their pl- yep. ups and downs. I agree. Uh, mountains or beach? Mountains. Jason or Freddy? 
Freddie, yes. no question. I think so too. And then I know you're in Chicago, so deep dish or thin crust? Thin crust. Really? Okay. I'm the same way. I love the idea of deep dish, but what's your reasoning behind it? <laughs> well, it's so intense. Yeah. I mean, you that's like a once a year type thing, maybe. <laughs> like you can't be, if you're eating that as often as a human should normally be eating pizza, <laughs> that's not good. I mean, it's that's not healthy. No, I just, it's too much tomato for me. It's too much everything. Yeah. It's too much crust. It's too much cheese. It's a delight, but I mean, it's like eating an entire chocolate cake. Like you really don't want to do that very often. Agreed. I remember when my parents would visit me at college and I'm like, I guess we're going to do our pilgrimage to Giordano's this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I only go, I only usually eat it when I have someone from out of town yeah. who wants to eat it. It's <laughs> funny. And what are your thoughts on the Chicago style hot dog? That I do like. Okay. I've got no problem with uh, the the relish, pickle, mustard, salt dog. You have strong opinions on the no ketchup rule. I don't have strong opinions on it. I, per, I do prefer it the Chicago way without ketchup, but I, I got really nothing against ketchup. <laughs> and finally, Pepsi or Coke? Man, I... I don't like I don't like either answer here <laughs> because there's such massive behemoth brands that I want to I want to go for a bo- boutique <laughs> answer. Uh, I guess I have slightly more positive positive connotations with Coke, but I have no idea why. Oh, it makes sense. I like Pepsi and every single author I have had on has picked Coke, like whether they like soda or not. <laughs> so like, yeah, no one is team what... Pepsi. <laughs> There's there's something about uh, Coca Cola. It's so it's such an old old brand. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the days when it you know was first formulated and it had cocaine in it. Uh, it that I, I I feel some sort of affection for those old fashioned ads that I've seen of it. Yeah. So I think that might be part of why I say Coke. But really, I don't like either of them. It makes sense. But yeah, another one down. No one's on the. Team Pepsi Island with me yet. (laughs) We usually end the episode with some chilling obsessions, just something we've enjoyed recently in horror. It doesn't have to be something that's come out recently because sometimes I'm just filling in my like pop culture blind spots like this week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I finally got over my childhood fears and watched child's play for the first time because I have just a ridiculous fear of dolls and Mm -hmm. just the sight of Chucky has made me so scared since I was little. So I finally, since it's on shutter, I finally like sat down (laughs) and watched it and I enjoyed it. Um, I know a lot of people like the franchise, so I might see if I could find uh, child's play too but yeah it was fairly enjoyable set in chicago um, yes so that was yes. fun to see <laughs> and you feel better now i do he's still so creepy like the first time that he talks i was still as an adult woman like cringing yeah. like oh i don't like that it's, it's something wrong but, about that <laughs> but do you feel like you you've gotten past it now though that uh, creeped out by anyone. I feel like I've conquered it, but I mean, like if I walk by a, a Spencer's in the mall and they have like a giant Chucky, I'm probably not going to like touch it. I still have my, like, right. I'm keeping my distance, but I feel like I've conquered that. Yeah. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. 
So what about you? Have you enjoyed anything, stumbled upon anything recently? Yeah, the, the, the thing that pops to my mind, I also saw in Shudder, uh, which is a fantastic film called Knife Plus Heart, um, oh, which is uh, among horror subgenres, slashers aren't necessarily my bag. I've, I've enjoyed plenty of them, but they're not my favorite. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the greatest slashers I've ever seen. Um, it it takes place, and I believe the seventies in the sort of gay porn industry. Okay. And but it is fantastic. Like it is scary. It is moody. It is uh, beautifully shot. Great acting. Surprises everywhere. Incredible cinematography. It's just a wonderful film. And this is a re- like this was made recently, even though it's yeah, set in the seventies. Okay. Yeah, it's set in the it's set in the late seventies, but it was made in two thousand eighteen. Oh wow! Okay, I've scrolled past this, so I'm gonna have to check this out. Mm-hmm. That's sometimes I, that's know, what it needs. I need someone to tell me like this was good. Yeah, I had it on my list forever, and I and I finally sat down and watched it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time, Daniel, for coming on and chatting with me. Uh, So just to remind everyone, The Living Dead will be out in June and Bent Heavens will be out this month. So check that out. And where can people find you online? The best place to go is danielkraus.com. And that'll have links to um, my social media and most importantly, my newsletter is where I really, it's really the place where I get most detailed about things. All right. Well, like I said, thank you so much for (laughs) taking time out of your day to come on and talk to me. Yeah. Anytime. My pleasure. Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash books in the freezer. There is also a Facebook group if you would like to join where you can post off and kind of join in the conversation. You can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at booksinthefreezer.com. The podcast is on Patreon under Books in the Freezer. We have a one, three, and five dollar levels. So at like the one dollar level, you get episodes on Sunday instead of Tuesday, and you get to know the topic one week beforehand. At $3, you can join the Patreon Voxer group. You have first dibs on asking questions for author interviews, and you get early access to the episodes. At $5, you get to know the topics I am doing before I record them. So in case you would like to add your two cents or like your favorite books and movies to be included in the episode. And you also get everything from the three and one dollar levels, including, you know, the Voxer group and first dibs on author questions and early episodes. Uh, So that is Patreon, Books in the Freezer. Another way to support the show is on Amazon. We are Amazon affiliates. If you go to Twitter, our pinned tweet has all the links, but we have a special Amazon link. And before you make a purchase, if you click that link, um, it supports the podcast like a little bit. We get a little bit of a kickback on any purchase that you make, um, which is very helpful. But you don't have to spend any money to support the podcast at all. 
one of my favorite ways is seeing you share it on social media. I love being tagged on your Insta stories on episode drop day, letting people know that you're listening and spreading the word. It really helps a lot. And of course, there's always leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which is a huge deal and makes a big difference for a small independent podcast like Books in the Freezer. So thank you to all of you who have taken the time to do that. I very much appreciate it. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya or on Instagram at that's what she read or on YouTube at that's what she read. Also, just quick side note for our listeners. I am getting closer and closer to my due date every week. So just giving you a heads up, I am working on recording uh, an episode. So it will be a normal guest episode covering a topic and recommending books before going on hiatus and then may or may not have one extra kind of bonus episode that's something very different after that. Uh, but I will be going on a small hiatus. I'm not sure for how long. I want to say maybe like a month, but again, not fully sure. <laughs> Just wanted to give you all a heads up for that. Uh, check the social media, though, in the coming weeks for any updates on that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and join us next time for Books in the Freezer. 